Texas talking ball. What was that that you said? Texas talking ball. Gonna hoop up beside your head. Texas talking Tell me who can you trust when Texas goes Hello and welcome to the Tribcast for the first week of November, our post-election special. We have Evan Smith. The CEO and editor-in-chief, he has joined me on stage already. And then let's bring up the rest of them. We have uh, executive editor Ross Ramsey is going to come up here. Editor Emily Ramshaw. Unless they get tied up. And then we'll get going. We're also going to have some special guests join us from time to time as we converse about last night's events. And then at the end we'll do some time for Q&A, and it'll be great. But let's get started. Um, how'd it go? Uh, Ross, you know, <laughs> I mean, you would, who had a worse night, the Democrats or the supporters of uh, keeping the rainy day fund flowing how it you know, already does? Is, you know, I guess the name is for all the bodies laying on the field, right? It's the, um, the statewide executive and judicial swept again. They haven't lost a race since 1994. They've uh, had a winning streak that goes all the way back to 1996. The only Democrat in statewide office was Larry Myers, who switched parties last year to run for the Texas Supreme Court. He got whomped. Um, the only swing district in the Texas congressional delegation went to a Republican. The only swing district in the Senate went to a Republican. Republicans picked up three seats in the Texas House, making their number now 98. I guess the, the hunt for flippers will be on to find two or three or four Democrats who might flip and make it a supermajority for the first time since six years, I think. Um, the Republicans broke through in Dallas County, which is one of the, the blueberries in the tomato soup that we like to talk about. They want a countywide election for district attorney up there, in spite of the fact that the straight ticket voting in Dallas County makes up about 66% of the vote. So about two-thirds of the people who vote in Dallas County vote a straight ticket. About 55% of those vote for Democrats, and in spite of that, Susan Hawk is the new district attorney. So wouldn't you say, Ross, I wouldn't read a whole lot into that on the party stuff. I don't think the Democrat lost. I think Craig Watkins lost. Well, I think the point here is that you know the places that are really solidly one party or another, like the state, for example, if you're running for state office, you can yeah. do almost anything if you're flying under a red flag. You have an R next to your name. If you, right. It was the case that if you were flying under the blue flag in Dallas County, you could do almost anything. It turns out Craig Watkins... Uh, proved to be the exception of that. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Democrats have busted through there. Um, I think all the way from the top of this to the bottom of this, it's Republican wins. There's a, there's a Democratic win here and there, a local win here and there, but it's, a, it's an emphatically red state. Um, and I think, you know, if this, uh, we were talking at the table a minute ago, you know, 2010 was a wave election with the Tea Party, and this is an affirmation of that election. But I, w I would say not just a Republican win, but I mean, an, an overwhelming, I mean, even the numbers that we were projecting in the newsroom that we were talking about yesterday before the return started coming in, you know, the Democrats ended up performing far worse than we even imagined they could possibly perform. Uh, so I think that was sort of the big takeaway looking at this night. You know, Wendy Davis not even cracking 39% as the numbers right. look right now. Worse than Tony Sanchez. Worse than Tony Sanchez. And her numbers were still better than all the other statewide Democrats who were running. So just I mean, right. 
but not, not significantly better than Jim Hogan, who made not a single phone call. And, Ju right. and Jim Hogan is correctly saying, I spent no money and did, a ba did basically the same as everybody. He's the Marty Akins of this race. No, right. those, those last two points that she outperformed him cost $35 million. Right. Yeah, and he got to be home eating beef stew right now. When goat she stew. Was it goat? goat? I'm pretty sure it was beef. beef. It, was, okay. it was very hard to tell. Look, the headline of last night is that Denton uh, voted to ban fracking and Texas voted to ban Democrats. <laughs> uh, there's, there's sort of no other way to, to distill down what happened yesterday except to say that it was every bit a disaster for Democrats with no good news. I, mean, I think the Bill White thing can be overplayed. Conditions in 2010 and conditions in 2014 are different. Six months ago, the discussion was if Wendy Davis wins, Democrats will be doing cartwheels in the street. Then it became, if Wendy Davis keeps this to a single-digit race, Democrats will be doing cartwheels in the street. Then it became, if Wendy Davis does better than Bill White, Democrats will be doing cartwheels in the street. She has done eight points worse than Bill White, which I have to tell you, even the most depressed, cynical, downcast people would not have predicted so the, that So the moral of that is don't play in the street or you'll get run over? No cartwheels, right. Exactly. Do you think Bill White uh, is doing cartwheels on the street now? Well, <laughs> it's a great day for Bill White. I mean, look, look she, lost, she, lost, she lost Harris County. She lost Bear County. She lost 10 counties that Bill White won. Right, she won 18 counties. Bill White won 28 counties right. in, uh, in, in 2010. She, she might still win 19. There was one gray that was not decided. But the Ross always finds the silver lining. But the longish the long the tail line. of this is because the Davis campaign collapsed in Bear County and ultimately Abbott won Bear County, Philip Cortez lost. And Pete Gallego lost. Now, you could say that even if Davis had won Bear County, Cortez would have kept, might have lost his house seat. Gallego might still have lost his, his congressional seat. But there's no question that there was a hope on the part of some Democrats as recently as yesterday afternoon that Van Depute and Davis, by extension, would do well in Bear County and pull some of those folks over the line. Or that Davis and Van Depute would do well in Harris County and pull Marianne Perez over the line. At the end of the day, their collapse had a longer tail and affected the rest of the results it's just a there's no way to spin it positively. Absolutely I mean, not. I do want to I want to ask about the infrastructure though. We had by way of Battleground Texas and by way of a lot of, you know, outside national cash, in theory all of this huge investment in in, you know, voter registration and voter turnout. So what happened? Well, Was that just entirely useless? Can I stop you there and bring up Jay Root to help oh, us sure. delve into this in topic? In order to answer that question, we bring you Yeah, this is Texas Tribune political reporter Jay Root. Uh, Jake, could you take a stab at that question? I'm not sure. Am I on? Here? You're as on as we want you to be. <laughs> can you hear me? Yes, that's now better, you can. Yes. Bungle uh, so, ground so, Texas. So what that's, that's what they're, the Republicans are calling them now, bungle ground Texas. <laughs> I mean, this Michael, Michael Quinn Sullivan on Twitter last night called them battle frown Texas. Uh, you know, this was a disaster for a battleground similar reception Texas. On Twitter. <laughs> this was a disaster for battleground Texas, really. I mean... The uh, the turnout in 2010 was I think 4.9 million voters. Now we're at 4.6 million. So they were supposed to increase turnout. Um, they were bragging as early as a couple of days ago that their turnout, they were getting their people to the polls. Um, they were talking about 28,000 volunteers on the ground. 33, and, you know, or 33. Then 30 33,000, rival, rivaling what Obama did nationally in terms of ground game. Right. And, and you know, I, I remember 2010 as a huge wave election. It was the supermajority that was ushered in. Um, there were a lot of Democrats that fell that nobody saw coming, more than, more than happened last yeah. night. Um, 
this, you know, when, when I walked into uh, the victory party last night, the first thing I heard was Ken Herman say, this is a good night for Bill White. Um, and I think that Bill White, you know, you have to ask yourself in, in moments like these, do candidates matter? Does the effort that, yeah. that you put into it matter? Um, and I think it does. Now, they, they weren't going to win, okay? That, that's clear. The Democrats were not going to win this. But could they have made it closer? I mean, Bill White made it closer at a time when it was a horrible, the Tea Party year, it was a horrible year for Democrats. So I think, right. you, you know, you have to assess some blame here. You say Democrats were not going to win. And after an election, everybody's a genius, right? But Ross, you know, the fact is we in the press and others around Texas did talk about this race early on as being legitimately competitive. Right? How early on are you talking about? Huh? How early on are you talking well, about? Well, I mean, I think the analogy like Nobody's is, been talking about it like it's a close race well, for months. I didn't say close. I said competitive. The analogy you made yesterday in the newsroom was to Hutchison and Perry. Right. How back, back in the day, we thought Hutchison and Perry was going to be the heavyweight fight we've been waiting it for It looked like for a great fight card in the hype. I mean, and it looked like right. one of those things where if the Democrats were going to do this, they had, after that filibuster performance, they had a candidate. And you remember there was this long search, kind of long walk through the desert right. to find a candidate and talk to the Castro brothers. And they were kind of like, ah, oh, not at this time. And Anise Parker was not this year. And all of the Democratic farm team was sort of like, you know, I think I'm going to wait a little while. Because those guys can read tea leaves. And, and then Wendy Davis and Letitia Vandepute sort of came to the fore. And now they have a candidate. And the prospect of a race, I think everybody kind of looked at it and went, well, you know, maybe at least they have candidates now. The other thing is everybody got this great sort of fake in 2008 in the Democratic primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton because they saw what Texas might look, out, look like if Texans turned out to vote. They got a big contest, it came to the state, the Democratic turnout, my numbers are gonna be wrong, but the Democratic turnout was about 2.4 times normal. The Republican turnout was one and a half times normal just because the Democrats were so exciting. And everybody saw this big giant yep. thing and kind of went, wow, what if everybody voted? I had friends in places like Circle C and Plano and places like that going, wow, I went to a Democratic thing, I didn't even know there were other Democrats in my neighborhood. So there was this sort of bubble around that. There was the possibility of a candidate. Greg Abbott, whatever else you might say about him, is not a charismatic politician. And so you looked at it, and, you, and there was you know, a thought early on, maybe a Wendy Davis or someone who is a charismatic politician. Maybe if you introduce some Elvis into this race, you got a little something. We didn't introduce any Elvis into the race. So I think a lot of those things that looked possible at one time pretty quickly fell away. Or is it the voters don't care about Elvis? I mean, I, I don't know. I think I, voters do care about Elvis. Because I feel like there was Elvis injected into this race. I mean, you know, from the very beginning, there was a lot of attention around it. This was a candidate who everyone was saying was the anti-Bill White. You know, this was somebody who was incredibly charismatic. And having Letitia Vandepute, you know, who's, who's vocal and outspoken and great on the stump, I don't know. I'm not sure that, and for them to perform worse than White performed, who was seen as sort of, you know, the cut and dry, boring, for lack of a better word, candidate, yeah. It, that makes me think that voters here were just so staunchly Republican that even an Elvis doesn't move the needle. I think I think uh, incredibly charismatic might be an overstatement. I'm Compelling. Not, I'm not sure perhaps. that that you know Davis ended up being charismatic. I think that she was often described as wooden or leaden. I think that's the way. Is that the, in your stories? No, well, I think that was the way. Actually, <laughs> I, think, I think that was actually the way that the. Uh, 
that the Los Angeles Times, I think, called right. her leaden yeah. or wooden or something like that. Um, look, I, I think that the other big problem here was Battleground came in here and said, this is what you're hearing the Republicans saying, and I think that they have a legitimate point here. Battleground Texas came in here and said, hey, we're Barack Obama operatives. We did this all across the nation in Ohio and Florida. And Colorado, all of, New Mexico. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and we right. have this technology, and we're going and, – and so and, – and, and the Republicans were like – had something where they could sort of hit the faux panic button and go, yeah. oh, my God, it's happening. What we've said all along is happening. Barack Obama and his liberal buddies are coming here to try to turn Texas blue. And they gave they gave right. the, they gave them a rallying point in a way. The, 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 you know, Democrats caught the flu nationwide. They got Ebola here in Texas. This was, you know, a blowout beyond what it had to be, I, I believe. Let, let, let's be fair to Senator Davis. Senator Davis was not, I, I'm kind of with you, I don't think she was incredibly charismatic, but Senator Davis was as good a candidate as the Democrats have had in 20 years. And she had no, a story, she had a right. real story. I, I do, I think that Senator Davis was as good a candidate, I mean, you look at the people who ran, I think she performed worse, but as a candidate, I don't think Bill White was exactly uh, any more Elvisy than than she was. But his campaign might have stayed on a more coherent but, but message. I, I think here, I think the I think the problem is is that she ran into, and anybody would have run into, the buzzsaw of political reality for Democrats in this state right now. Her, her the presumption was that somehow she could put together a coalition of Democrats who vote in off-year or midterm elections, plus Democrats who only vote in gubernatorial elections plus some independents and Republicans of the sort who presumably supported her in her two Senate races in what we now know formally is a Republican Senate district, right? That was the path to victory. But the problem is that path was trumped by the, by the math, that, that the, the, the realities of where people do turn out to vote and how many of them turn out to vote were just too much for her to overcome. She, I, why I, was I, it think, so I think to put this entirely at her feet, that this campaign was winnable, but she wasn't a good enough candidate. She ran a, fl a, a flawed campaign, to be sure, but in some ways, we now look back over this, we thought this was going to be this big competitive election, or at some point we thought it would be somehow, somewhat competitive, and probably we were all deluded into thinking that it was even going to be any more competitive. She, I'm, not she even, I'm not saying winnable. I'm not saying winnable. Nobody was saying winnable. I'm not saying winnable. I, I, well, I, <laughs> oh, no. I, I just, I, I mean, <laughs> it, it wasn't winnable, okay? I don't think it was winnable. I mean, you look, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I mean, you look now, it's not winnable. However... Why is Texas so much worse for Democrats than Kansas? Why is it so much worse than North Carolina? Why is it so much worse than these other states? And, and at some point, you have to look at the people who are running this. You have to look at their message. You have to look at their tactics. And you have to say, you know, they took a bad situation and made it way worse. And what does this mean for the candidates in future gubernatorial elections? You know, we've already been talking about the Castro brothers and what they're, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're looking at the numbers and saying, uh, four years, eight years, maybe not. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. Well, and I mean, Evan was saying that, you know, you couldn't put this coalition together, but she couldn't even put a, like a campaign staff together for the first six months of her campaign or something. I mean, uh, at some point you have to look at the, the, what fell apart? Like, why couldn't they? They couldn't even get their first steps going. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, look, look at what happened with the battleground memo that that we wrote about recently. I mean, they they got their numbers wrong. They got their cash on hand wrong in one of the re recent reports. 
um, all of their predictions about uh, wh why say that? Why go out there and say, hey, we've got our people coming. Do they not right. know that we're going to see the results eventually? What's, what's their elevator pitch to donors this morning? Okay, this is a long-term program. Our first election is behind us. Support us going forward because... Right. Click. That's what they're going to hear on the phone. When they is, that, that. is it fair to Battleground to judge them based on this election, given that when they got in, they said it's not about 2014, it's a much longer play? Well, they said it's not about 2014, and then they attached themselves right. almost entirely to Wendy Davis. And so then yeah. it did become about 2014. Yeah, I think, I think that in fairness to them, I did think they said at the beginning that it wasn't about right away. It wasn't about 2014. But invariably, they were going to get judged on the basis of... Yeah, I mean, these, look, we're, we're, we're using our time, and I understand why we are, to say that the Democrats did so badly, and that's... Let, let's give also credit to the Republican campaigns for not screwing this up. I, mean, I, I think that what you saw, Van de Pute's word last night in her statement to Patrick was discipline. I congratulate Senator Patrick on running a disciplined campaign. The fact is they all ran reasonably disciplined campaigns. You know, the Abbott campaign played it totally down the middle, very few unforced errors, very cautious, drove the press crazy some of the time for being so cautious. Patrick and Paxton went into undisclosed locations more or less after the runoff. I was going to say the they moment were very disciplined yeah. in, in ref, like Refraining refusing from the, talking yeah. to anyone. Look, but right. you know what? But but and yet they won by these enormous margins. I mean, in some respects, the press is a loser in this campaign well, because the, because we were irrelevant to the outcome of this campaign. People didn't do editorial board uh, 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 meetings. They didn't give interviews since the runoff. They hardly debated. They hardly debated. The press complained. You know, call out the wambulance. The fact is that the press complaining ultimately had no bearing on this campaign, and in fact, they avoided the press had no bearing yeah, on it. Clearly, that strategy works. It worked. I don't think the Republicans won their races last night. I think the Republicans won their races last spring. March and all, May. All of their really tough right. races were in right. March and in the runoffs. You know, yeah. there were Dan Patrick beat four statewide office holders. Um, you know, you go down that ballot, you yeah. remember those races, there were five people running for this one and four running for that one. That's when they had their tough races, and that's where right. they actually, you know, if you go back and look at their spending, that's where they actually had to spend money, had to go out and engage voters, had to do debates, had to right. do editorial boards, all of that stuff that you're talking about. The fact was, by the time they got to the general election, it was like, you know, yeah. this is, if we don't screw this up, a yeah. cakewalk. And the Patrick I, case is, is the best one, I think, because Patrick was the candidate Democrats wanted to run against. If you remember, all these smart-ass West Austin Democrats and people like them said, well, Vandepeet's already won this, so we're going to cross over and vote for Patrick in the primary because we think that he's like one of those unexploded devices on the side of the road in Afghanistan. If we just drive by him at the right speed, he'll blow up. And he doesn't blow up, and he didn't blow up. They, they said they wanted to run against Patrick. Well, they got what they wished. Right. And so... I, I think of all the Republican candidates, the one who probably did show the most discipline in not blowing up and in not making this into a competitive deal was Patrick. And, you know, in, in the end, he's going he's gonna to be maybe the most powerful guy in the state of Texas. Right. I mean, what does that foretell for how he behaves in the Senate? Well, the first thing he did last night was cut off Abbott's acceptance <laughs> speech. Yes, you know, while true. Abbott was on the 10 o'clock news last night doing the acceptance speech, they kind of looked at their watch at 10, 11, and went, it's time to go. And time to go. Yeah. Patrick grabbed his mic and went. And Local the Houston TV stations all had to jump. So. Speaking of time to go, Jay, do you want to put it, get in the last word before we send you off? I think yeah, he just got I'll, booted off the stage. Well, I, I, I would point out that this is, I asked the Texas Legislative Reference Library to find me the last time 
that all of these executive level positions were on the ballot. And, and they went back to 1906. I could, I could only get you to 72, I think. <laughs> well, well, well I, I, you know, yeah. And, 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 you know, you had people like Robert Calvert and some of these other who was controller for 20 years or however long it was. Mm -hmm. But there has, they could not find, and they went back to where modern re record keeping began and could not find another example. So you're looking at a historic potential opportunities were open races, okay? Um, so, and, and you know, the governor is under criminal indictment. Uh, the attorney general candidate, elect now, uh, has ad admitted that he violated the Texas Securities Act and paid a fine for it. There, was, there were some potential headwinds here that meant nothing in the end. So um, I do think that candidates matter. I think that the, the, what the effort that people put in there and their tactics matter, again, it was not going to happen uh, for Democrats, but I think you can make the case they made it significantly worse. But you, you agree that, it did, that, that as long as you had an R next to your name, you were cool? Oh, absolutely. That, that's no what, question about it. In the end, it. that's what no. it was about. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Jay. We have one more special guest. Let's bring up Jim Henson from the University of Texas at Austin's Texas Politics Project. <laughs> Sorry, I was delivering technical information. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Jim, you've, you do our polling. Uh, you've looked at the numbers. Uh, was there any path to, since it wasn't winnable, we don't want to say that. But any path to a, a better loss for the Democrats here that they missed? A path oh, to know. a better loss. A path to a better loss. That's quite the slogan. I think that was their problem to begin with. I mean, you know, that was kind of the slogan from day one is, is there a path to a better loss? You know, I mean, I, you guys were talking earlier and I was, you know, wincing a little bit. I mean, just in terms of, well, you know, this was, well, it wasn't competitive competitive. It was maybe sort of competitive or, it, you know, I mean, I, you know, Davis didn't lead a single poll. Right. Yeah. Uh, the fundamentals going into this were the fundamentals we said from the beginning that right. what we needed to see was a shift, uh, some kind of disruption to help Davis. We didn't see that, and I think in a lot of ways everybody was looking in the wrong direction in terms of the demographics. Demographics were destiny this time, but the train was coming at the Democrats, mm -hmm. not you know, they weren't waiting to get on. Well, I mean, talk about that a little bit and talk about that among Hispanics and talk about that among women. women right. 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 Well, I mean, you know, look, I mean, the main thing with Hispanics is that the compos if the exit polls are to be believed, the first round, and it looks mm -hmm. about right, the share of, the, uh, of Hispanics in the composition of the electorate didn't change. It remained stable. It went up from 15 to 17 percent between 2006 and 2010, stayed at 17 in 2014. And that's a problem. Um, and then, obviously, Abbott made headway with Abbott Hispanics. Abbott got forty-four percent of the Hispanic vote. If right, and people, you, you know, I mean, there were a few people around a few weeks ago that thought that was completely crazy to figure that that Abbott could could finish in the forties. But if you look at Hispanic men, it's part of the gender argument here. Yeah. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the big thing you got to look at here are white folks and men, and everyone was yeah. looking at Hispanics and women. Yeah, he, and, he, and he actively, and let's give Abbott this, he competed actively for the Latino vote. No, well, sure, and I, and I think everybody, border, denied yeah. that that, everybody denied that that was right. going to help. And no, I, I mean, think the final couple of months of the campaign, it was, he was almost constantly on the border, which, and, you know, Wendy Davis was too, but he was really investing there. Can we talk about I, the, the women's stuff, I think, is so interesting, because there was this huge, like, at a certain point last night when it became clear that Abbott had won women, Right. there was this explosion on Twitter of people saying, oh, my God, Abbott won women, this is such Perry a shock. Perry won women by a... Eight. No one, no Democratic candidate for governor has won women since Ann Richards in 1990 outright. She tied George Bush in 94. 
And then since then, the Republicans have won women every time. I pulled off of your website this morning from the exit polls. Davis won Latino women 61-39. She won black women 94-5. She lost white women 67-32 and lost women overall 54-45. So even overwhelmingly winning non-white women, the non-white vote was such a small percentage of the overall turnout that it had absolutely no bearing on her overall performance with women. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a moment early in the campaign where it looked as if, and this is months ago, there might be a little bit of a loosening of the party affiliation of some white women in the suburbs. Yep. And, you know, that, that fluctuated a little bit in terms of party identification, yep. but it ultimately didn't materialize, and right. they, they couldn't win in the suburbs. Bill White did better with women than Wendy Davis did. Chris Bell did better with women than that noted feminist Chris Bell did better with women than Wendy Davis did. Well, I mean, I would also, though, think about, I mean, these comparisons are going to be going on for a long time. We're going to do a lot of parsing of all this. I mean, this was a tough election conditionally for Democrats here. I mean, I mean, I think if you look at the national landscape and, you know, we're talking about the wreckage here, there's a lot of wreckage to go around yep. for the Democrats nationally. And so I think, you know, you talk a lot about cross currents, and I think early in this election cycle we're, you know, everyone's speculating, and I think... You know, you guys were talking about the press coverage and, and the thought about it. I mean, there's a desire to make these things a little more competitive than they, they turn out to be. Right. I mean, I've talked to a lot of reporters over the last year, year and a half, saying if you look at the fundamentals, it's pretty hard to see this race being particularly competitive. It's really about how they lose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at how this has turned out, I don't think – you know, I, I was thinking this morning, did, did anybody – can I think of anybody that said that this was going to be – a 21-point race on Election Day. And I can't think of a single person that, I, that I've talked to. I mean, you know, there's somebody going, no, it was me, but, I, you know, publicly. But even, even privately, I mean, you know, there's a lot of messaging going on, and, you know, nothing leads people to lie about their numbers like an election. But Nobody, I, I don't know of a single person. But nobody even bothered to lie to me about a 20-point I don't know of a single person who said <laughs> during this entire campaign, she will do worse than Tony Sanchez. Well, did you guys think that, that turnout would go backwards? I was thinking when, when, Evan, when you were talking about this coalition that Wendy Davis was putting together, it was a coalition of, of zombies. It was all of, it's a coalition of, of non-voters. It's like, these guys right. don't vote, and they wanted them. They might have had them, for all I know. They didn't show up last night. I don't know who they were for. They wanted these guys. They didn't show up. They wanted these guys. They didn't show up. All the non-voters were non-voters. I guess but, it's like a photoshopped Walking Dead, Walking Democrats but, thing. But, but who thought it would go yeah. backwards? It went from 5 million to 4.7 million. And right. this right. is in a state where registered voting is up at a record, where the we, population right. has grown pretty strongly over the last four years. It's a bigger state than it was four years ago, and fewer people are buying And four products. years ago, we had the worst voter turnout in the entire country, 51st out of 50. And so we had fewer people turn out now in a state that has grown in population. So and I think that's going to, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so does that mean that registration efforts are working, but turnout efforts are not? I think that's right. Well, I, mean, I was just going to say, that's going to be one of the big postmortem questions in going through kind of county by county and looking at this stuff and figuring out, I mean, in, in many ways, the argument you guys were talking about Battleground Texas was this comprehensive plan of multiple points of contact, integration, and turnout. And it may be that that the turnout effort just failed at the last minute. But I think the other interesting thing about 
I'll go ahead and review it. Well, no, I mean, if, if your plan is basically, we'll just register everyone. If we can get just get everyone out to the polls, everything will change for us. But it's, I mean, it seems from the results last night that the Republicans are already doing so well on the persuasion side of the voting thing that you know you might just end up turn, turning out Republican voters. Well, I mean, I, 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 think, I think we're a little bit beyond that to the extent that people are targeting pretty specifically, but I also think that the Republicans have caught up pretty well, well um, in Texas and elsewhere. And in your latest polling, it looked like all of the, the whole issue set was Republican. Well, yeah, I was going to say that. It, there's two things about that. It's one, the issue set that was on there. I think, I think Rick Perry probably didn't do it for Abbott per se, but, but Rick Perry did the Republican ticket an enormous service by sending the National Guard to the border. That was a very, obviously, a galvanizing move among Republicans and not unpopular among a decent swath of Democrats. That really helped. And then, you know, what you're kind of referring to, Ross, I mean, the, the stability of immigration and border security is the most important problems among Republicans, and particularly interested Republicans and Tea Party right. identifiers is a huge asset. If you go and you look over at the Democratic side, there's nothing galvanizing Democrats. So you have two real problems. You have a massive public opinion that's yeah. not galvanized and difficult to appeal to, right. and uh, a lack of organizational infrastructure to really try to change that, or elite leadership, you know, in social science terms. You know, and then on top of that, you've got a national environment that is yep. really, you know, not breaking your way. So, and acknowledge that, you know, while the Republicans had those issues, what Wendy Davis was most closely associated with, fairly or unfairly, was an issue of abortion that has an absolute double edge to it. For every person you pull towards you, you potentially in the electorate push somebody away from you. That's a hard, you know, if she had been running on the basis of the issue that was her first filibuster, public education. Yeah a much more bipartisan issue. Maybe that's an issue that galvanizes people. But if, if abortion is the thing that you're associated with and she had a complicated relationship with that issue out front or not out front during the entire campaign, that's another built-in landmine you've got to Well, I haven't looked closely, closely enough at the exits in terms of usually they ask, you know, what was important to your yeah. vote. Going right. into this, though, you know, neither of the candidates wanted to talk about abortion. Both of them had their sensitivities on it. Until September, and, well, when the Davis book came out. Well, the book, but even that, you know, it's not like they wrote that particularly strong. I mean, they, you know, they used it to appeal to specific constituencies, but I think their, their polling was telling them the same thing that everyone else's polling was saying, which, you know, abortion was a landmine issue on both sides. I mean, the Abbott campaign didn't go out of their way to talk about it either. And if, when we asked going in what people were talking about, it, what they thought was important for the vote, Right. Even if that specific item focused on the election, it was still immigration and border security right. among a huge swath of Republicans, and that just drove it. Plus, plus all that Governor Obama stuff. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, you know, obviously, yeah, yeah, that's the other piece about the national environment. Right. Obama did not lose this election, though, for Davis. I mean, I think we're in agreement about that, right? But it, I think, yeah, he didn't help. I think Obama I was. I think Obama accounts for a lot of the difference between the Davis performance and the White performance. Fine. Yeah, no, I was thinking that when you guys were talking about, you know, 2010, and we were talking about the table, 2010 and now, I mean, if you think about where we are in the point of the cycle, yeah. there was still some residual, I mean, much as the Democrats got beat up in 2010, you still got some follow-through turnout in 2010 and, and enthusiasm that was based on right. the Obama, the 2008 election, that's right. over. But look at that. Obama won 28 counties in 08 against McCain. He won 23 counties in 12 against Romney. Davis won 18 counties this time. It's a nice line, though. Makes sense. Yeah. 
so do we, are we going to talk about what the world looks like now with these? Yeah, results? yeah. What's going to what what's going forward? What you know, we're about to go into a legislative session with brand new people that have all been elected now. Um, what will that look like? I guess starting with the Senate, will we have the two thirds rule? Not if Dan Patrick um, gets the votes he wanted. He said all the way through his campaign in the Republican primary. In fact, he got the other three people he was running against in the Republican primary saying the same thing. We want a 60% right. rule. We want so 60% would be 19. 60% would be 19. There's now 20, 20. Republicans in the Senate. Um, the senators last time and this time, six last time I think was uh, the replacement. Eight this time when we're through with all of the Hager yeah. replacement and all of that kind of stuff. All look to be, or mostly look to be, more conservative than the people that they replaced. Right. Is there any chance that this that he doesn't get his way on this? I can't imagine. All he needs is a simple majority, right? right? Uh, you know, I think you know it's interesting. You know, you guys have been watching John Whitmire in the last few days talking about you know, well, you know, this is going to hurt those rural senators when they're looking at this, and then, you know, there's a million reasons for the that there are a million reasons that senators find themselves in a minority that may be partisan and may be issue-related taking advantage of the two-thirds rule. And if the people who support the two-thirds rule can get them thinking about that, then maybe we've got a, a conversation here. Well, I, you know, I, I think that, to me, I mean, I kind of read that slightly differently in that the real, I mean, the real power of the two-thirds rule is not just protecting the minority, it's protecting the body from the chair. And when you have a bunch of new people, that's a subtle argument to make to people. You have to go to a lot of people that are coming out of an election, are thinking ideologically, are being, are framing this as this is our chance. And it's, it's a harder argument to say, you know, you know, you really have to understand how this place works and understand that those rules protect us from him. And it's more likely, I think, if you, if you get rid of the two-thirds rule, this is weird Senate stuff, but, you know, if you get rid of the two-thirds rule... I think it's more likely that the Senate majority uses its caucus to control the lieutenant governor. You know, if the lieutenant governor, if they think the lieutenant governor's off the chain because they, you know, he's basically the calendars committee, and if, if the lieutenant governor's off the chain, I think, watch the Republican caucus. I'm prepared to say here with fear of being wrong, but I can whip that vote. There's no way in hell the two-thirds rule is going to survive. There's no way. Right. So speaking of... Um, on the chain or not. I mean, you know, what kind of lieutenant governor is, is Dan Patrick and what's the relationship going to be like with Abbott? He's going to be exactly the lieutenant governor he's been as a candidate. I think the fact is Dan Patrick did not etch a sketch himself back to the center for one second between the runoff and the general. And I can't believe, knowing Dan Patrick as we do, that he has any motivation whatsoever to be anything other than who we know him to be as lieutenant governor. But you've seen Dan Patrick evolve and change in the Senate a little bit. I mean, he, he came in and, you know, uh, became, he tempered himself and became much more of a behind-the-scenes sort of pulling strings, quieter senator over right. his time there. Eric Erickson, Post Red State, this morning put up a blog post that was titled, Dear Republicans, We Did Not Elect You to Work with Democrats. I think that is going to be the same clarion call for the Patrick-led Senate. But you can I, do that, you can do that working need, with Republicans they also. They don't need to. They're going to have 18 folks who are more or less in lockstep ideologically. You're going to have what passes for two purple senators in <laughs> Kel Seliger and Kevin Eltyf, who are not incidentally are former... Just painted, see how he just painted targets on those Former things? mayors <laughs> who ran as nonpartisan candidates for those mayoralties, who as mayors had to get things done or people come to your house, Right. They're going to be the two folks kind of in the purple section. And then you're going to have the 11 Democrats who may as well not come to work for the whole session. 
because they can't get anything done and they can't prevent anything from happening. I think you get the tale of two Patricks here. You get the Dan Patrick who's sort of um, developed an ability to work behind the scenes on things like education and stuff like that. You know, if you talk to Joe Strauss, he says, you know, Patrick actually worked with us on the education bill. And you get the Dan Patrick who came out and voted against the budget. And, and you know, which, which Dan Patrick you get on any given day is going to be Dan the Patrick. story of the Senate. Well, the, ni the nice thing about, this, about being an elected representative is that you get to do both. And that's where the skill comes. You, know, right. you, you pick your spots. I think we could pretty easily know where Patrick's spots are going to be. The question is, you know, how is he going to do most of the business of the legislature? And I think if you look at the people he surrounds himself with, I mean, it's not like he has some firebrand chief consultant advising him. He's a, yeah. very well advised by somebody who is an insider and is often in this room. I think he has two firebrand chief consultants behind him. So I don't think, um, you know, I mean, I think when it comes to governing, I think he's, you know, he's going to be more conservative. I mean, I think that the more interesting thing to me is, is about Patrick is in the context of what is the new constellation of political institutions in Texas look like among the leadership, right? Because I think we've come out of a period with a very, for kind of obvious reasons, a governor who in his last four years was very influential and a lieutenant governor who's been relatively passive. And now we're going to see something completely different, and we're going to see... So the question is, how much do we see a resumption of the normal pattern that's really envisioned in the political culture here and in the Constitution? Powerful lieutenant governor. And when you say normal, right. you mean how not the last decade or so? Yeah. 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 I, mean, I, I know that's normal for you because right. you're a pup, but... <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the whole idea that this is going to be a session in which it's going to be the House versus the Senate, I think there's some legitimacy to that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the person with the hardest job going into this, this session is Joe, Joe Strauss, Strauss, for sure. Yeah. They'll come to that, you know, that, that old Sam Rayburn line that, you know, the Republicans are the opposition, but the Senate's the enemy. The, the House will come around to that somewhere in the middle. But, of the but come back to this question of Patrick, please, and this idea of how it's going to go. Tell me an issue, any issue on which the Patrick-led Senate, given the ideological makeup of that Senate and Patrick's own disposition, give me an issue on which they're going to work with the Democrats. Where, where are they going to find common ground beyond criminal justice reform or something that at this point is almost a cliche? Give me, give me something else. Oh, Single you know, issue. Regulatory issues. I mean, they'll, you know, 90% of what the legislature does, which, you know, nobody covers and very few people talk about. Right. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of regulatory issues, lots of sunset stuff. Yeah, it's just the stuff that affects, you know, people's lives every day. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it, makes, it doesn't get a lot of clicks on the website. Blah. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, it's not clickbait. Yes. Right. Electricity does not a lot of clicks. But so even, even though we've had uh, an entirely, re you know, Republican governor, Republican lieutenant governor, everything, you know, even though that's not changing, we are expecting a fairly significant shift in the legislature and how things move? Yes, is that what it sounds like? Well, not so much in the House. I'm, you know, w with, with respect to Representative Stickland's claim to be coming back and bringing friends, he's bringing about as many friends as can fit in a Land Rover, honestly. He's not bringing that many friends. And the ideological composition... You'll need a few good ones. The, the, the ideological composition of the House is not changing dramatically enough that Speaker Strauss is, as we sit here today, at risk of not being Speaker Strauss. And if, if Speaker Strauss is the speaker and appoints the committee chairmanships and if the disposition of the House is not all that different from last time, then I think we see the House-Senate thing setting up even more clearly. I don't think there's going to be a huge change in the House. I don't. You'll have new chairs of appropriations and ways and means and higher ed and natural resources at least, 
off the top of my head. And so new chairs are going to mean new things, but basically the House is not going to be all that different, right? Yeah, I think the continuing story in the legislature, and this started probably in 2010, maybe earlier, is going to be the ability of the Republican leadership to negotiate the, the factions inside the Republican Party. And, mm -hmm. you know, is Abbott going to be as good at that as Perry has been? Is Joe Strauss going to continue to keep that balance in the House, or does 98 threaten that? If they flip a couple more seats and get a supermajority, does that threaten that? What does it mean that the Senate is more conservative as a body? Without, before you get to Patrick, and what happens inside that caucus, and what does that do to the set of issues that they decide to bring to the floor and how they decide to argue about them? Right. I, I think that's going to be the, the tale of the tape. It's almost like back to our regularly scheduled program. Right. right. Yeah. And who is Greg Abbott? This is the other question that I think is not answered by this campaign. Greg Abbott has been in statewide office since 2002 as Attorney General and before that as Supreme Court Justice. And I think there are a lot of people in the Capitol and outside the Capitol who don't know who this guy is. Just don't, listen to his mother-in-law. Don't know who his people, don't know who his, well, don't know who his people are, which is not to say they doubt his conviction or doubt his, his faith or doubt his good heart, whatever you want to say. But I think people don't know who he is temperamentally and ideologically. He will theoretically have 5,000 letters of resignation on his desk on the day he's sworn in, right? People who Perry has appointed over the years, Abbott will want to appoint his guys. Nobody knows who his guys really are. Who are his appointees? What is his disposition as governor? It's very different to be attorney general, very different to be Supreme Court. He will be a big element in how this whole House versus Senate thing is ultimately resolved, right? Comes to his death. Maybe. Yeah. Well, it'll be up to him how big an element he is. Right. I mean, that, you know, he could, you know, if you think about the earth, the first Perry governorship, I mean, he was an element by being widely kind of it's, criticized it's not, for not it, being enough of an element. It's not difficult. It's hard to remember, but it's not difficult for the legislature to take all the sharp objects away from a governor. And, you know, the, the sort of Texas is a weak governor state, you know, that we grew up with, you know, even strong personalities in there had a hard time sometimes corralling the legislature. Rick Perry's done a remarkably good job of it, partly because he's a former legislature, legislator himself, partly he just understands the tools. Well, and, we have 14 years to learn. And part of it's time on task. And, you know, even if Abbott turns out to be a master of this, it's going to take a little time to figure it out. All right, well, I need to take all the sharp microphones away from you guys and uh, bring this thing to an end. Uh, we're going to do questions here. If uh, We'll put this online, so if, if listeners have questions or comments, they can email those to tribcast at texastribune.org. So thanks to Jay and all our panelists up here for coming, and that'll be the end of this portion of the TribCast. We'll move over to Q&A. Where's our... Jim, you have to leave the stage and right. hand over your microphone. <laughs> <laughs> How does he get out of this? Mike socks. Oh. <laughs> so you have a question. Yeah, raise your hand, and Agnes will bring you the mic. So the voter ID requirement... Was that an issue like the Democrats claimed it would be? It's too early to tell. The, the, you know, it's going to take a little while to see who didn't vote because they didn't have the proper ID. Uh, it doesn't look like voters were very excited. You know, the coalition of the non-voting didn't vote. And you know, people didn't feel right. themselves off the couches. You've got to go to court with a, some kind of an argument of, but for voter ID, this would have happened. And I'm not sure that voter ID changed this election. It might have changed some individual people's ability to vote. The ruling from the federal judge in Corpus Christi is really, really um, sharply worded. And it's, you know, it's 147 pages. And those are the facts of the case. 
And all the appeals court will do is decide whether this, the decision was right. But the, I think the important thing rolling forward in a legal sense is this argument that Texas intentionally discriminated in a way that should put the state back under the bail-in provisions of the Voting Rights Act, which basically would mean any changes, if that holds, would mean that any changes in Texas election law would have to be approved by the feds before it could be put into effect. It's like the old Section 5 that we were taken out of. But that'll take a couple of years to sort out. But you'll you can imagine that the Democrats will make that argument, especially with uh, voter turnout being down the way it is. Sure, and especially with this assumption that maybe there were half a million people who were able to vote last time who wouldn't be able to vote this time. Right. The problem wasn't the ID part. The problem was the voter part. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that we've had uh, females for both the uh, governor and lieutenant governor uh, as the nominees for a major, well, a minor party ticket. Uh, why didn't that galvanize more females to vote for Democrats this time? And uh, was there just not a message there? What was that? I personally, I don't really buy this argument of a women's vote, and we've talked about this a lot on, on previous podcasts, but I mean, I just think this idea that women are going to vote one way or another based purely on their gender is a fallacious argument. And, and the statistics prove it's not yeah, true. Right, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, we're talking about the white female numbers and why it's such a high percentage. Those white female numbers largely match you know, the, the broad voter um, breakdown statewide, regardless of gender or ethnicity. So I, I don't buy that argument. Ross and Evan may feel different, but there I are, agree with you. Mm -hmm. There are issues where there's a gender split. There, I don't think people vote you know, I mean, I, I think this is right. People don't vote for that one because it's a girl and that one because it's a boy. But there are some issues where people split. It wasn't the issue set this time. This time the issue set was border security, immigration, um, Obama. It was a bunch of issues where there's not really a gender difference. If there, you know, you get elections from time to time where there are gender differences on the issues that are sort of at the centerpiece of the election, but this wasn't one of those elections. And I would say that the abortion and women's health issue set galvanizes women in Austin in a huge way. I don't right. think that is the driving issue, say, for suburban women in Dallas County. You know, right. I just don't think that's right. making, helping them make their decisions. One of the pro I mean, that's a really interesting point. One of the problems with viewing these issues and these elections from this vantage point is that we're living in Disneyland. You know, I mean, if, if as we said this many really? times. This is all Disneyland? This is all. If, if, the, if the attorney general's race, the runoff, had been conducted between the Austin Club and the Starbucks attending Congress, Dan Branch would have won, right? This is the bubble. Outside the bubble, very different view of a lot of these issues. And I just think that we, have, we make the mistake very often in the press, not just us, but everybody, but all of us in this community, of viewing it through this particular lens. But if you get outside of this area, you talk to people, it's an entirely different set of considerations. I just don't think that we can adequately say or accurately say where women are as it relates to that issue without really having a fuller view of the, of, of the electorate. Uh, I do remember nine months ago where the media was all aghast at the folly of Dan Patrick considering a run against a sitting lieutenant governor. Right. Uh, and then I remember right after the primary, uh, uh, Letitia Vanderpute saying, this is exactly the candidate that I was begging for. Be careful what you wish. Well, what did Dan Patrick do right to survive such great odds, both in the primary and the general? Well, for one thing, let me, let me just jump over. For one thing, I think that Dan Patrick didn't 
lean into the caricature of him that has been in evidence since he first... Remember Senator Peggy Hamrick? I mean, the fact is, he was supposed to be a joke candidate for that Senate race, right. which was all but decided back in, in, in 06. There's been a caricature of Dan Patrick that has been partly true, guy who got a vasectomy on the air, Danny Gobe, all the stuff that his opponents are only too happy to trot out. But at the end of the day, he has successfully resisted leaning into that. One of the great un unfound artifacts of this campaign was all of the people both on the Republican and the Democratic side, who tried to find the, the audio tape of the vasectomy on the air that, that Dan Patrick had. Nobody could ever find it. But I'm not sure it would have changed anything. He, you know, he, he runs right toward the character and the politics that he got here with. You know, I had the, the opportunity to, to uh, moderate a debate during the primary and during the general. And what was interesting about that during the primary was all of the four Republicans ran toward the most conservative part of their party, and he beat them there. By the time they got there, he was already on the hill with the flag up. In the, in the general election, which was kind of interesting, you know, you're used to candidates migrating back toward the middle. And what was interesting when he and Letitia Vandepute debated during the general was he stayed right where he was yep. in the primary. Some of the emphasis was different, but none of the positions were changed. And he none of the down. tone was changed, yep. or a little bit of the tone was changed, but not a lot. You know, he's running as what he is. He's, you know, this is like, this is exactly what it says on the label. Um, I am what I am. It's kind of a Popeye thing. And, and two other things on that. I think that he set the terms of the conversation in both the primary and the general. His opponents had to fight on his turf. Right. So remember, whether he was attacking Todd Staples for voting for health care for undocumented persons or wanting to have driver's license or permits for people who are undocumented, he, everybody's having to respond to Patrick. The second thing is, and I will give him credit as a tactician and his campaign staff, they had the best social media campaign of any of the, of any of the four major campaigns. They were, they were really light years ahead of the other campaigns in terms of how they deployed the, the modern tools of campaigning. Um, that, that's uh, intangible, but it matters. He also was a candidate who made it through probably the most personal and messy and nasty attack of the political cycle at all this year. You know, I mean, right, the Jerry Patterson oppo dump. Right, right we, we've almost forgotten about it. It almost it feels so irrelevant by this point. But that was a pretty right. incredible thing to go through uh, and and to handle quite gracefully. Yeah. Uh, so from last night's results, you could forecast another twenty years of elections for Republicans winning. Yeah. What would the Democrats have to do then to change that? Would they have to move toward the center to make it more palatable? You know, the Republicans got where they are by sort of um, changing the Democratic Party from the inside. You know, you remember this, you know, there were these, Texas was a Democratic state. It was a really conservative state, even when it was a Democratic state. And we had, you know, the Yarborough guys and the Connolly guys, and, and we had something of the fracture that you now see in the Republican Party. But one of, the, one of the things that we had there that we don't necessarily have now is Republicans voted in Democratic primaries. And I think you know, we're going to have to go through a period where Democrats start voting in Republican primaries. That's where you win elections. You win them in the spring. And you know, if that happens, you know, the, the problem with the Big Ten is it always cabs. It always, you, know, you always sort of start looking at the other people at the table and saying, you know, you're not one of us and split, the Republicans haven't done that. And part of the reason they haven't done that is because I don't think the Democrats 
in Texas have figured out what it is that voters are buying and what it is that voters want to hear and what it is that voters want to do. They haven't figured out how to address those issues in a way that attracts enough voters over to make them a viable alternative. So you're suggesting the Democrats vote in Republican primaries to cause the outcomes of those Republican primaries to slide farther to the well, right? Well, I just think if I you want to have a voice in government, you know, the place where you vote is in a Republican primary right now. That's, that's been the case in Texas for 20 years, and I think, you know, if you look at somebody that you're trying to get to vote, a non-voter, you're going to this coalition of the zombies again, and you go to them and you say, what would make yeah. you vote? It's like, I want to have a voice in this stuff. I want to influence yeah. some issue that actually has an effect on my life. And if I vote as a Democrat, it may be a noble thing, it may be what I actually believe, and it may be, but it's a thrown away vote. The flip side of that, though, may be that the Democrats have tried to play this too cute and too cautious for a while now and run candidates who brag about how they're conservative Democrats and their centrists. Maybe what the Democrats need to do is Doug Flutie this campaign. Put the ball in the end zone because you can hardly do worse than you're doing now. Somebody suggested a couple years ago, and they picked Rafael Anchia, and I don't mean to pick on him, but he was the suggestion. Put Rafael Anchia on the back of a flatbed truck, no jacket on for the entire campaign, sleeves rolled up, ties loosened, and have him just run an old-fashioned, progressive, populist Democrat, no, none of this centrist BS, just run all the way to the left. There's no proof there's a market for that. There's no proof right. there's not. I think we got the proof last night. I, no, she did not. I, I would dispute that. She did not run that campaign. Well, and you do run into that. Was, she did not run that campaign. That was sort of this weird right moment in her campaign where she came out for open carry, where I think people thought right. this what the, you know. This is the flip side of the argument for Cruz running for president as Cruz in a country that is probably not as red as he is or as Texas is. You, you ran two fake conservatives as the Republican Party nominee for president in each of the last two cycles. How'd that work out for you, if you not well? If, if Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee and she's inevitable, what do you have to lose by running Ted Cruz as Ted Cruz as the nominee? Test the proposition that if you run somebody who is truly who he is, I, I mean, know. the Democrats could decide next time. I don't even know who the hell their candidate is next time, honestly. But, you, but if the Democrats decide they want to test I don't think there's a line. No, clearly. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, there's well, no bench. There's that, not even a lawn a, chair. That's, I mean, that's, that's actually, the that's, actually the other, that's actually the other thing to throw in here. You know, when there's not a line, sometimes that's the way in. You've got and, three and, people, yeah. You've got three people elected on the Republican side statewide who are all about 45 and under, who are all swinging right. the bat with the donut in the on-deck circle. It's you don't like, even have a single Democrat late, in uniform. Late 1988, early 1989. The polls all say the two most popular, strongest politicians in the state of Texas are Phil Graham and Jim Hightower. There was no line forming to run for agriculture commissioner. There was no line forming to run for treasurer on the right. Republican side. But, you know, hey, there's no line. There's nobody in my way. I can try. Right. And that's when Kay Hutchison and Rick Curry win. So maybe something like so that. So Jim Hogan for governor. <laughs> right. They couldn't do much worse. I mean, they should really just try anything. Um, right. I think that's it for us. Uh, Evan, Emily, Ross, thanks for coming. Jim, thank you. Uh, thank you all for coming. And uh, see you tomorrow morning. Yeah, right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> thanks. Thanks.